How can something come from nothing? Could stars and planets be alive and conscious? Is it dangerous to run experiments in the Large Hadron Collider? All this and more in this week's question show. It's time for the question show. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are, question pops in your brain, just write it down into the YouTube comments. I will gather them up and I will answer them here. We record this show live every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. So if you want to come and see a much longer, sometimes three times longer version of the questions and answers show, but unedited, uh, you should come and join the live stream. There'll be a reminder here on the channel. You can subscribe to the channel if you haven't already done that and then click on the remind me bell and you'll absolutely no question get a reminder from YouTube when the event is about to occur with plenty of times you don't show up late and wonder why this happened. Trust YouTube. All right, let's get into the questions. Bob, how can something come from nothing? Whenever we talk about the Big Bang, we always get a question like this or many questions like this or hundreds of questions like this or comments. Are they questions? Anyway, the point being that people have problems with the Big Bang because they don't understand where the universe might have come from. And one of the most important things to remember about the Big Bang is that the Big Bang has nothing to do with the origin of the universe. All right, I'll say that one more time, just so we're really clear. The Big Bang says nothing about the origin of the universe. The Big Bang is just a theory that attempts to explain that the universe is getting less dense over time. And that means that it was more dense in the past. That's it. It's less dense today. It was more dense in the past. And so an analogy you might use is let's say you're driving west down the highway and you see a car in the other lane going east towards you. And you might say to your friend, look at that car. I'll bet you that car was more west in the past. And now it's moving east and your friend would agree with you and go, that sounds like a pretty good theory. Now your friend might say, where did that car come from? Did it come from Albuquerque? Did it come from Seoul? Did it come from Australia? You would both shrug and have no idea where it came from. And that is the same thing as the Big Bang. So last week we talked about the three pillars of the Big Bang. And there's actually a fourth pillar, four corners of the Big Bang, but when astronomers look out in all directions, they see galaxies moving away from us at the larger scales. There are some galaxies close to us that are moving towards us, but the rest, the farther we see them, the faster they're moving away from us. And so this tells us that the, there are gaps opening up in between galaxies. The galaxies are becoming less dense over time. So if they're getting less dense today. If you ran the clock backwards, then they would be getting more dense. And so then astronomers said, like, is there a time when they would be so dense that they wouldn't even be galaxies anymore. And if that was the case, you would predict that there would be this time in the universe when you would see this sort of time when the light was first able to escape into the universe. And that's what astronomers see. And so then you could continue running that clock backwards. You could say, well, was there a time when the entire universe was like the inside of a star? And the answer is yes, that you would see very specific ratios of hydrogen and helium and other light elements that we have no way to make today that were formed when the universe was just a few minutes old. 
And the last big corner of the of the Big Bang is that we see galaxies in these sort of fairly large clumping structures today. And we would expect the farther back in time that we see, we would see these being kind of more loose. And so over time, gravity is pulling all of these galaxies together into larger and larger structures. And that's what we see. But it doesn't say where the universe came from. It says the universe is getting less dense over time. So it was more dense in the past. And then if you like say to an astronomer, so where did the universe come from? How can something come from nothing? The astronomer goes, oh. right? They don't know. They don't know. You don't know. I don't know. Nobody knows. And we may never know. And that's fine. And so a lot of the times I know that when a person sort of says this well, like, where did the universe come from? Big Bang is a lie because where did the universe come from? That they're generally coming at it because they believe that the Big Bang conflicts with some religious belief that they have, some theological belief, some personal belief, something, or just like incredulous disbelief. Like, I can't believe that something came from nothing. And that's fine because nobody knows where the universe came from. And and again, we may never know. But the Big Bang has nothing to say about the origin of the universe. So don't worry about it. Like, how can something come from nothing? We have no idea. Where did the universe come from? We have no idea. Was there something before the Big Bang? We have no idea. Could God have created the universe? Sure. Right? And the way that he did it was to through the Big Bang. Perfectly fine. It's all viable. And in fact, many astronomers are religious and think that God was what set the universe in motion. It doesn't matter. All we do is we ask nature to reveal its secrets one at a time. We approach the universe with curiosity and we let nature tell us how things work and what's out there. And we try not to assume until we have sufficient evidence to get a good sense of what's going on. At this point, you've probably noticed a Star Wars planet above my shoulder, and this is a way for you to vote for the questions that you thought were the best or the answers that you thought were the best, whatever it is, just vote. Um, so just wait till the end of the episode, there'll be a different planet for each of the questions that I do. And then go ahead and type in the comments down below the name of the planet that you thought was the best or like include a question as well. And then we'll tally up all of the votes and we will celebrate the winner next week. And so last week we had a perfect tie. We had half of the votes from DO. Where are we in the search for life as we don't know it? And from Lance Piles, what excites you most about the Juice Mission? So congratulations to both of you for asking the best question. In this case, I think it was the best question. I'm going to try to give a great answer, but um, but I'm I was really excited to be able to talk about both of those ideas. So all right, so don't forget to vote this week. The Korgborg. Could stars and planets also be alive and conscious? So that is actually a very interesting question. And, you know, I think you can have this sort of general sense that that's ridiculous, that planets are rocks, stars are gas. How could they be alive? How could they be conscious? And we don't know if they are alive and if they are conscious, but there's some interesting papers that sort of consider this idea. So I want to start with the planets first, because this is a little bit more established. And so there is this idea called the Gaia hypothesis, not Gaia, the awesome spacecraft, the Gaia hypothesis. And the gist of it is that planet Earth 
is at the largest scale, kind of like an organism. It has various cycles that keep it in a certain state of equilibrium. If the temperatures get too hot, then the water vapor increases, causes more rain, cools temperatures down. If the carbon dioxide gets too much, then plants grow, sequester it, that you've got the sort of constant sunlight that's coming into Earth, and the Earth itself is regulating itself, regulating its temperatures. Life is trying to keep Earth hospitable to life. And that Earth has gone through a bunch of phases. Like when it first started out, it was just pure geology, pure rocks. And then the first life forms formed, and you got into this biosphere where you've got life forms that are improving and filling ecological niches and getting more and more specialized. And then at a certain point, the one of the most effective forms of life was human beings that we were able to generalize so well, that we were able to kind of take over the planet. And so this is the rise of the technosphere that now life is going through a higher and higher level of technology. And of course, we are at the point where we are developing more advanced artificial intelligence, you can imagine we'll reach this sort of mature technosphere place, hopefully we'll still be around like hopefully, this artificial intelligence that we create will want to keep us around, I don't know, as pets, as friends. But you can see it's this transition. And so if life forms in other places, then you can imagine this process of evolution into an intelligent civilization into technology as this natural process that happens again and again, it's a way for a planet to wake up to become conscious over time. Or it's just rocks, and bugs, and people. And think about your own body, like you are made of countless cells, each one it does its own job, it's its own creature inside you. And yet somehow, we emerge as a conscious being out of this enormous amount of cells, and even more cells in our microbiome of like bacteria that aren't even part of our body. And yet, here we are thinking being conscious, I think therefore I am. And so does consciousness emerge at a planetary level from all of the technology that gets developed by the beings on it. So it's it's a cool idea. I like it. There's no evidence and it may never be beyond just a hypothesis. So the other question about stars, this is kind of out there. But uh, you know, it, there was a scientific paper that was written about this, which doesn't necessarily mean anything. But the gist is that, like, what does it take for life? Like you need some kind of fluid that can act as a solvent for your life, you need some kind of structure of the life where it can sort of mix various chemicals together. And then it can adapt over time and evolve. And that's how life could get going. And so one theory is that there's this idea called cosmic strings. And these are sort of large scale structures that would be left over from the formation of the universe, and they would just be floating around in space, but they would be attracted to gravity wells, as you can imagine that these cosmic strings would fall inside stars, and then kind of coil up and wrap around inside the star, and then they're stuck. But they're in this super high energy environment, 
that there are magnetic particles that are flowing around the magnetic fields, lots of like pretty much every single element that's possible. And so you can imagine that the cosmic strings could form as this way that these particles could move together, the the fluid of the star could act as a solvent to allow these, these various chemicals to break apart and reform into new combinations around the cosmic strings. And so you could theoretically, like very theoretically, uh, get some kind of life form living inside of a star. And then who knows, right, if, if the process of evolution happens long enough, it could gain consciousness. And so you could imagine that at the center of every star, there is a conscious entity that is I don't know, thinking, hanging out, making computers. I don't know. AF 911 vids. Isn't it dangerous to do these high energy extreme experiments on the Large Hadron Collider? From my limited knowledge, these experiments try to create these extreme conditions by colliding particles at extreme speeds to measure and discover unknown particles. What if this process we create a particle that interacts with regular particles in a dangerous way? What if we create a small black hole that doesn't behave like we thought and just eats up the earth from the inside out? I'm just speculating. But isn't there an inherent risk that we could create something in the LHC that could basically destroy humanity? Whenever we develop large scale experiments using more energy that humanity has ever used before, there is a negligible but non zero risk that something bad could happen. And when scientists were developing the Large Hadron Collider, your exact concern was brought up. What if when we turn this machine on, we create a black hole that gobbles up the Earth. What if we convert planet Earth into some kind of strange matter that then expands outward from planet Earth at the speed of light? What if we collapse the the very structure of, of at the quantum level and destroy the Earth and start destroying the universe at, at light speed? And so before they proceeded, scientists did a study to try and figure this out. And the answer came with the fact that the Earth is being hit by cosmic rays, which are being hurled out from supermassive black holes and supernovae and neutron stars at energies that are many orders of magnitude more powerful than anything we can produce in the Large Hadron Collider. And these particles are being accelerated to nearly the speed of light and they are crashing into the atmosphere and causing enormous cascades of particles that we can detect down here on Earth. And so scientists looked at the amount of energy that's packed into these cosmic rays, and it is way beyond anything that we can do here on Earth. And so the universe is already running this experiment much more powerfully than the Large Hadron Collider could be. But you can imagine a larger version of the Large Hadron Collider, maybe something that is hundreds of millions of kilometers across that is running particles at enormous strengths to the point that it exceeds the power of these most powerful, most energetic cosmic rays. And then you're in new territory. And then I would take those risks a lot more seriously that we could be trying out experiments that the universe has never carried out before. But when you think about like a supernova, and you think about the enormous amounts of energy that's coming together, you've got a star with many times the mass of the sun that is collapsing in on itself. And parts of it are raining down at 70% the speed of light. And then you get a black hole. Hmm. All right, that might be a problem. Sid Vicious, what if we created a black hole here on Earth? Would it be dangerous? And how would you stop it? 
So let's say that we did create a black hole with the Large Hadron Collider. Now the theory says that if you do create a black hole, it's going to evaporate before it even hits the ground. But let's say it doesn't, then what's going to happen? Well, the black hole is going to fall into the Earth, and it's going to be really, really tiny. And so chances are it's going to fall all the way down to through the middle of the Earth and through to the other side of the Earth to the exact opposite part of planet Earth from where you created it, and then it's going to fall back the other way. And it's going to return to where you formed it and it dropped into the Earth. And maybe it will encounter a particle along the way and gobble it up. And then if it does, then it'll move a little less than it did to get back to your instrument. And then it's going to fall back down into the Earth and go backwards and back and forth and back and forth. Now it's going to be influenced by the gravity of the sun and the moon and the other planets in the solar system. So it's going to shift around. And occasionally it will bump into a particle and it'll eat it it'll become more massive and they'd be capable of consuming more mass. And then it will eventually settle down into the middle of planet Earth and start gobbling up the planet from within. And for a long time, like a long time, it would be no problem. And then eventually it would start to cause instabilities and it would essentially gobble up the Earth from the inside out. But it would take, like I forget the calculations, but like the chances of a, of a black hole with that small of an event horizon will spend a long time before it even encounters its first particle. But as I said, the, you know, it's impossible. The, the theory that predicts that you would form them also predicts that they would evaporate before they even hit the ground. So, so don't worry about it. And if these were happening now, now it's a little more dangerous than the cosmic ray ones, because when you think about it, these cosmic rays are coming in at close to the speed of light, they are hitting the atmosphere, they maybe are creating black holes when they hit the atmosphere. And those black holes are moving at close to the speed of light, and they don't interact with anything. So they pass right through the Earth and away they go off into space and probably don't interact with anything else, you might have black holes passing through your body like neutrinos. But the difference on the one that we create here on Earth is that it starts on planet Earth and remains inside the Earth this entire time, which makes it slightly uh, a bigger problem than the ones that are being formed by by cosmic rays. But this is all theory, like it's just conjecture. There's no evidence that any of this stuff is real. If you like my answers to your questions, as well as the other things that we do at Universe Today, consider joining our Patreon club. This helps us keep minimum ads for everybody. Like as you can see, there are no ads in the middle of this video. As a patron, you also get an ad free experience on universetoday.com for life, even if you unsubscribe. You get ad free videos, early access to interviews, as well as other perks that are exclusive to our Patreon community. Thanks to everyone who has already subscribed and welcome to the recent newcomers, Richard Caulfield, Dia Livingston, John Drake, Bruce Stover, Kevin Simmons, Kenneth Walls, Kenneth Rex, Aaron Segrev, Robert Roy, Steen Kastroff Hansen. Join the club at patreon.com slash universe today. Ixions, I've always wondered about neutrino images. How do you get an image without focusing the source? Neutrinos are these particles that are released from the sun and other nuclear reactors supernovae, things like that. And these particles barely interact with anything else. Like they always say like on average, neutrino could go through a light year of lead without interacting with any of the lead particles. You have many neutrinos passing through your body right now every second, 
streaming from the sun. It's just that the particles don't interact. And so you don't feel them. But astronomers are able to detect neutrinos. And the way they do that is by having an enormous amount of water. And the greatest neutrino observatory on Earth right now is the Ice Cube Observatory down in Antarctica. It is essentially a cube of ice one kilometer on a side. So it's one cubic kilometer of ice. And then they have these boreholes that go down through it with with particle detectors at some set amount on these strings down through this. And then what happens is most of the time, right, countless neutrinos are flying through this area and not causing any damage. And then every now and then a neutrino strikes a particle of ice, and then it breaks apart into a cascade of other particles. And then it's like a shotgun spray that moves past these detectors that are sunk into the ice. And so one set of detectors detects the particles, and then the next set of detectors detects the particles. And from that, they're able to not only detect like what type of particle struck the ice and turned into these other kinds of particles, or I guess it imparts its energy into the ice. That is like a mini particle accelerator that then freezes out a bunch of other particles that then spray through the ice and are able to be detected. So they can essentially, as they are able to see these particles moving through the detectors, they can then figure out where that particle came from. And so they can say, oh, we know that a supernova went off that way. And we see a bunch of neutrinos streaming through the ice in a direction that points back in the sky to where that supernova happened. And of course, there's plenty of them that are coming from the sun. And in fact, the people who are working on ice cube are working on a larger version. So they're going to go from the one cubic kilometer version to a 10 cubic kilometer version. And the thing I really love about neutrinos is they will become the third part of multi messenger astronomy. So we've got visual astronomy in the electromagnetic spectrum. And then we've got gravitational wave astronomy. And so like, before we could only see the universe in this one type of seeing. And now we have two ways, radiation and gravity waves. And the third one is neutrinos. And so when you have a supernova go off, it's going to release a flash of light in the electromagnetic spectrum, it's going to release gravitational waves, and it's going to release a burst of neutrinos. And those three different sources will tell you so much about the universe because they're they're independent. The light runner, what's the maximum number of planets a solar system could have? So we don't really know. But the constraints are, you can't make the planets so close that they gravitationally interact with each other and start to crash and collide and or throw other planets off or throw them into the star. And so when you look at say the solar system, we've got these planets on this fairly large separation and each one of those planets is the result of vacuuming up planetesimals and other particles and space rocks to essentially dominate its orbit. And we know that say the moon formed when a Mars sized object crashed with the Earth. Well, the, that Mars sized object was in roughly the same orbit as the Earth and the two crashed into each other. So eventually, they clear out their orbits and you're left with what you're left with. And so maybe if people were a little more organized, you could add more planets to the solar system, but you probably couldn't have done it until later early on, you would just get too many gravitational interactions with all these planetesimals. So but there's room, 
on the far end for more planets. Like you could have, you know, we know that astronomers are looking for planet nine. You can imagine many other planets out there beyond Pluto. But astronomers have looked and they've used fairly powerful infrared telescopes like WISE and they've set a constraint. So we know how big they can't be. And so now there's looking for planets that could be in that area. And I, like, what is the definition between a really, really big Kuiper belt object and a planet? You know, that remains to be seen. So you could imagine having like a really large star with 20 planets, 40 planets. There's no reason why they couldn't have that. But what is like the most planets you could have theoretically? And so there was actually a really great story that we ran on University Today and some other places where uh, this guy organized what was the ultimate solar system. And it involved using a supermassive black hole as the gravitational anchor of the entire star system. And then that's surrounded by nine stars, which are providing the illumination of all of the planets. And then you have 550 Earth-like planets on concentric orbits, but they're in a stable orbit around the habitable zone of these nine stars. And so in theory, you could have more than 500 Earths in the habitable zone around a single star. His name's Sean Raymond, and he's actually come up with more, even more models where you've got like a multiple black holes orbiting a supermassive black hole and each one of those black holes is stars and each of those stars has planets. And so you could get to a point where you've got tens of thousands of Earths all orbiting very close to each other. And that would be mind bending. Because when we think about how long it would take to go to another star system, we're looking at 50,000 years to get to the nearest star system with our with our available technology. And yet if you lived in this star system with all of these other planets, it might only take you a couple of days to get to another Earth, because they're going to be like the distance from the Earth to the moon passing one another, but in a way that's stable as long as you line things up perfectly. And this is one of those ideas of a type three civilization that you would have this futuristic civilization reorganize the stars in its galaxy to be better oriented for life that that like having these vast distances between stars is inefficient and it's really hard to manage an empire when you have to go all this distance and so instead move all the stars around move all the planets around destroy some planets to make other ones and put it all into place so that you've got the most perfectly optimized star system possible for life. And that's something that we would see if we looked out into space, we would see this perfectly optimized galaxy that some advanced civilization is using to the greatest extent that it can. And we don't see that, that as far as we can look in all directions, we see what is effectively pristine wilderness in the astronomical galactic sense. Ferris Gratia, how has Universe Today changed over the years? If you could go back in time, what would you tell your past self when starting? Yeah, if, for those of you who don't know, I've been running the website Universe Today for just shy of 25 years now. So that's been my career, I'm a space journalist. Uh, the, this video thing, this newfangled video thing is it's a fairly recent thing, as well as podcasting and so on. I started with text, with writing. And I think I did okay. 
right? Like I've been, when you look at all of the media companies that are going out of business are all around us. Like at the time that I'm recording this, Vice just filed for bankruptcy, BuzzFeed News shut down. Uh, I don't know of any space journalists who work at mainstream media companies anymore. I mean, there used to be Miles O'Brien, Alan Boyle, but either they've all shut down all of their departments or they've, they've gone freelance. So the fact that I've been able to run this company for almost 25 years and do better and better every year, I think is, is great. So, so I wouldn't have a lot of, of, you know, big notes. Um, but I, but I think I would have figured out, I would have hoped that I would have figured out what I'm good at or what I specialize in earlier. And, you know, when I think about the kinds of stories that we cover at universe today, I'm really excited about what is right around the corner. I'm less interested in star systems with a million Earths and Dyson spheres and warp drives and that kind of thing, because it all just sort of feels like science fiction to me. What I'm really interested in is, is the technology that's being developed today that is going to enable more exploration tomorrow. So I'm way more interested in a new type of propulsion system that uses water heated by microwaves to be able to let a spacecraft raise its altitude by two kilometers than I am at the possibility of terraforming Mars. I mean, sure. Yeah, it would be great. You know, like whenever terraforming Mars becomes right around the corner that I'm all in, I can't wait. But for now, I'm just excited by by those little incremental improvements. And so the kinds of stories that we choose for universe today is very much this thing was just discovered, or this is a really cool idea to overcome this problem that we have. And you see this reflected in the interviews that I do here on the channel. And I think if I had, if I could go back and tell myself, it'd be like, this is what you're good at. This is the kinds of stories that you like to tell and work out how to tell that story across universe today earlier on. And I think, you know, in the beginning, we more reported on press releases randomly. And, and now I'm very carefully choosing those kinds of stories. I'm not going to tell you about new Lego sets and video games and television shows and movies and any of that kind of stuff. I'm going to tell you story after story. Here's the new interesting thing that was just discovered. Now, if you want more information about Universe Today and just sort of like just how I do my job and, and how we pick stories and behind the scenes, uh, we did a new podcast on Patreon for that we called the shareholders meeting. And it was like an hour and a half of me answering questions like this about, about our philosophy, how we're approaching artificial intelligence tools, how we give stories out to the viewers, how we assign projects to the company, that kind of thing. So if you're interested, there was a podcast fairly recently, we'll probably do the next version of that in a couple of days. So patrons who are listening, uh, get ready to get your questions into me. Jen, what's your favorite nebula? The Rosette Nebula. In, in fact, in the star parties, I would always ask the astronomers to show the Rosette Nebula when they could. Google made a video about the virtual star parties that we used to do. So they sort of included that, that I always asked to see the Rosette Nebula. I love the Rosette Nebula. Farron knew. What is the last milestone of human space exploration that the average adult will most likely live to see? What about the younger generations? That's an interesting question. So like, okay, I'm 51 right now. 
And when I was 10 years old, I watched the space shuttle launch for the first time. I barely remember the Viking landers in like 78, I think. Um, I remember being in high school when the Voyagers reached Neptune and Uranus. It was like 1989, it reached Neptune. I remember that. And here I am now. So let's say Artemis returns to the moon in 2026, maybe 2027. So I'll be 55. Maybe the first humans will go to Mars in the mid 2030s, maybe the end of 2030. So I'll be in my mid 60s at that point. And then I don't think there'll be any large milestones. So I think for me as a human being, like obviously I'm going to get my robot body and live forever. But if I didn't get my robot body and live forever, then I would live to see a human base established on Mars that's been running for 20 years. That puts me in my mid 80s. So, you know, I like those odds. My children, so they're 20 years behind me. I mean, like, I don't think there's going to be a lot of other milestones in human space exploration beyond a research base on the moon, a research base on Mars, and a research base on an asteroid or two, and then some more orbital space stations. It's going to be a long time before we shift into the next major phase of whatever human space exploration does. Like if you just chart the growth of the world's economy, it eventually starts to envelop all of the capability of the entire solar system. And it doesn't take a long time, like a few hundred years, and we will be utilizing every single part of the solar system. But we're still at the very beginning of that exponential curve. So I don't think the younger generations will see, like I think when my kids are on their deathbeds, they will know about a human base on the moon, a human base on Mars, and a few human bases on asteroid belts. But 10 generations down the road, people living in the 2300s will know of giant spinning O'Neill cylinders across the solar system, I think. Or maybe we'll realize that the Earth is the best and that nobody ever wants to leave. All right, those are all the questions that we had this week. Thank you everyone who asked questions in the comments. Thank you everyone who showed up for the live show. Remember, we do the show live every Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific time. And don't forget to vote. We'll see you next week. If you want to stay on top of all the important space news, join my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content. Subscribe at university.com slash podcast or search for Universe Today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to just Paul Davis, Vlad Shipelin, Jay Dennis, David Giltanen, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.